I am indeed grateful to be with you tonight. I'm thankful for the opportunity that God has given us and for the time that we have to be together in worship and for the privilege that we have to be together over the course of this gospel meeting. I want to say as we begin tonight that if there are questions that you have about something that you hear this evening or about a spiritual matter, we don't want you to leave with those questions on your mind. We'd love to sit down and talk with you. Our desire, more than anything else, is to do the will of God. And so we'll open up our Bibles, and we'll seek to find God's answer to the questions that you might have. And I pray that you will take me up on that. We're talking this week about hallmarks of the church. And I mentioned this morning that a hallmark is by definition a stamp of authenticity. Something that proves that an item is genuine. Hallmarks are typically used with regard to precious metals. And so gold or silver or platinum or something of that nature to be shown to be the real thing would receive a stamp, a hallmark, so that you know that what you're getting is what you're paying for. The church has certain hallmarks as well. Things that we can look at, things that we can use to identify it as the body that we read about in the New Testament. And so this morning as we began, we talked about the identity of the church. And there are a variety of terms that are used to help us appreciate and understand the church in Scripture. It is the house of God, Paul told us. And so as the house of God, it has the opportunity to stand firm to support the truth. Church is the flock of God, and so our task is to submit to the will of God and to those who serve as leaders over his body. It is the spokesman for God, and so we're to seek to proclaim the gospel to the world, not to keep it to ourselves, but to share with those around us. It's the family of God. And so when one member of our family suffers, we all suffer, and we seek to comfort one another, and we seek to help one another. It's the body of Christ. And so all of us have a job, a responsibility, a task to use our abilities to build up this body. And it's the bride of Christ. So we have to keep ourselves pure. That's the identity of the church as it's seen in Scripture. We talked also this morning about what the church's conduct should look like. Paul had that in mind when he wrote to Timothy. If I'm delayed, I write to you so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. As we continue this series tonight, we're going to talk about unity. Unity. Now, as you think about the term unity, there are a couple of facts that I'd like to share with you, things that I believe you already are well aware of. Number one, God wants his followers to be united. Doesn't he? Isn't it the case, by the way, in Mississippi, this means yes. <laughs> it also helps me to know that you're still alive. Isn't it the case that God wants us to be united? That's true, isn't it? You have the psalmist saying in Psalm 133, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together 
in unity. What does God want from us? He wants us to be united. When Jesus prayed near the end of his earthly life in John 17, he said, I do not pray for these alone, but for also those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one in you, Father, as you are in me and I in you, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. What did he want? Just as Psalm 133 said, he wanted the followers of God to be united. And Paul certainly had that in mind when he wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. And he was pleading with the brethren. He said, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. It is very clear when we study the New Testament that God wants his followers to be united. That's fact number one, and we're aware of that. There's another fact that's also just as clear. Not only does God want us to be united, but it is also true to say that in the religious world today, we are anything but united. God desires our unity, but we're not united. And so the question becomes not only why, but how can we remedy that. I'd like to suggest to you that unity should be a hallmark of the church. When individuals ask you, tell me about the church, and you start talking about qualities and characteristics that describe the congregation here, one of the things that you should be able to say to them is this, we are all on the same page. We are all working together for the good of the cause. We are all seeking to be servants in God's kingdom. We are united. Now the question becomes, how? How can we get to that point? And so tonight I want to spend just a few moments in a letter in the New Testament that I think helps us to understand that. It's a letter that's very interesting. It's an encouraging letter. It's a letter where Paul wrote to thank people who cared deeply for him. People with whom he had a wonderful relationship. His letter to the Philippians. And so I want you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Philippians tonight for the next few moments as we think about how unity is possible. While you're turning there, let's begin in the final chapter for just a moment, a passage that was read for us a moment ago, verse 2, I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. I also urge you, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel and Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. When we read those verses, there are some things that I think we can correctly assume. I believe that we can correctly assume that Euodia and Syntyche are members of the Philippian congregation. That seems reasonable to me. It also seems reasonable to me to say, based on what Paul is saying to these individuals, that there was a problem between Euodia and Syntyche. Sometimes problems exist even among good brethren. Paul understood that very well, didn't he? 
He and Barnabas, who is described in Scripture as a good man, had problems between one another at one point. And so as Paul is writing to these individuals who clearly have some issue between them, he encourages them. Be of the same mind. I implore you, Odia, I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind, but he doesn't just say be of the same mind. You see, sometimes when we have problems with those around us, we agree just to disagree and we agree to go along. It's not about us simply coming to a mutual agreement. It's about us conforming our lives with what the Lord expects. Do you want to have unity in the church? That's another question you can shake your head yes to, by the way. You want to have unity in the church? Conform your life to what the Lord says. If we have a desire to do what the Lord says, to follow His will, then unity is indeed a possibility. And so as you read the book of Philippians, you're reading a book that has in mind helps so that the congregation can be united. Now that's not all Paul is dealing with in this letter, and I understand that, but it certainly is an issue that he has in mind. So what can we do to have unity in the body of Christ today? Let me share just a few ideas with you. Number one, if we want to have unity in the body of Christ, we must preach Christ. I want you to see what Paul says in Philippians, the first chapter, beginning in verse 15. He's writing this letter, incidentally, from Roman prison. That's where he was when the book of Acts ends. And we believe, rightly so, that Paul wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon during that period in his life. And so even though he is imprisoned, and I think that his circumstances at this juncture in his life had grown perhaps worse than they were even at the end of the book of Acts, he still has the well-being of the church in mind, not his own trials, not his own difficulties. And so as he's describing what is necessary, he says, some indeed preach Christ even from strife and envy, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. It's very easy for us to have people that we really like. I bet that I'm speaking to some folks who have some good friends. I hope that the fellow Christians who are members of the congregation here are your friends. We ought to give preference to one another. Paul tells the Romans that in Romans chapter 12. But just as easy as it is for us to have good friends, it's also easy for us to develop folks that we don't get along with quite as well to have people that perhaps we are not able to mesh with. And sometimes when there are folks that we don't necessarily get along well with, we have a tendency 
to start looking at their faults, to start looking at the things that they do wrong, even if those things are very minor in importance. And we start emphasizing those failures. We start emphasizing those things that perhaps cause us to be at a distance from them. I want you to see that Paul does not take that track. There are some people, evidently, who are opposed to the Apostle Paul. I would say they probably used his imprisonment as fuel to the fire. Can't you imagine them going around the first century world and saying, well, you know, you probably shouldn't listen to Paul. I mean, after all, look where he is. He's in prison right now. Paul did not mind that sort of behavior. What he was interested in and what we should be interested in is that the message of Christ is preached. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife. Why were some of those individuals preaching? Paul said they're preaching from envy and strife. Some, he goes on to say, also from goodwill. The former are preaching Christ even for selfish ambition and not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains. Perhaps they were using it as a platform to heap coals of fire on the Apostle Paul. Rather than being upset, Paul concludes, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is preached. I would to God that every person that ever stands in the pulpit of the Lord's church would have the same attitude of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1. The most important thing is that our Savior is proclaimed. That Christ is preached. And if we ever get to the point where we are more interested in preaching our own pet ideas and our own pet projects, even if they are good projects, we've gone too far. Friends, there are a lot of things that the church does that are good. Things that ought to be used as tools to build up those around us. I'm thinking of means that we use to evangelize. I'm thinking about universities and colleges that teach individuals the truth. I'm thinking about camps where our young people go and they learn about Jesus. All of those things are wonderful things. But the work of the Lord's church is bigger than any school, any camp, any project. Our work is to preach Christ. And it's only when we become so focused on preaching Christ that everything else is secondary that we have the same attitude that the Apostle Paul had. And the church is glorified. And that's what God intends. Now, when we preach Christ, there are several aspects about that that are significant. We're supposed to preach about Christ, and that means we're going to tell others what Jesus did. We're going to talk about the miracles that he performed. We're going to talk about the parables that he taught. We're going to talk about how we can learn from following his example. We're going to talk about how he is indeed the Son of God. And we're going to talk about how his doctrine is the doctrine upon which we must stand. That certainly seems to be the idea that was being stressed by John in 2 John in verse 9. He says, whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. The doctrine of Christ, what does that refer to? 
certainly can refer to the doctrine about Christ, but it can also linguistically refer to the doctrine that Christ taught. I think John has both in mind. We must stand on Christ, who he is, and as a result of who he is, what he taught. You want to have unity? Number one, preach Christ. Number two, you want to have unity? Live Christ. It's easy for us to talk a good game. To know, for example, the right answers. To be able to tell others what perhaps we should be able to tell them. But friends, it's altogether a different matter for us to be able to live what we preach. That's what Paul's getting at in Philippians chapter 1. Look at verse 27 and following. He continues and he says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. When he begins verse 27, he does that in an interesting way. He says, only. The idea of that word is a singular focus. What truly is important for us as Christians? Paul says, the way that you live matters to God. God is concerned with your life. He is concerned with your behavior. He is concerned with your actions. But he doesn't just use that word only. He uses the word let. And the idea of allowing or letting your conduct to be worthy of the gospel of Christ is the idea of conscientiously choosing to live a life that is pleasing in the sight of God. In other words, you have the ability to choose. You can either live in a way that brings glory and honor to Christ, or you can choose to live in a way that dishonors Him. But the choice is indeed yours. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now it's interesting, as Paul goes on through this letter, he talks about various ways in which our conduct can be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And one aspect of that is with regard to our attitude. So if you will, look at verses 14 and following of chapter 2. He continues and he says, Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. It's interesting that Paul does not say do some things without complaining or disputing. It's not what he says. He does not say do most things without complaining or disputing. He does not say, do the things that you do in your life except for those things that are just the most difficult without complaining or disputing. He says, do all things. How much better would the work of the local church be if every member said, I'm going to heed the words of the Apostle Paul and I'm going to do all things 
without complaining or disputing. Not only do our actions outwardly matter, friend, our attitude matters. God is concerned with the way that we are looking at the work that we're seeking to accomplish. And so we seek to live Christ, letting our conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That my life can serve as a shining light toward those around me should exhort me to be different from the world. But this also includes living for Christ, that is, the way that we serve doctrinally. Look at chapter 3 in verses 15 and 16. He says, therefore let us, again there's that word, let us, as many as are mature have this mind. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Remember, we're talking about unity. How is unity possible if we will preach Christ more than ourselves, but also if we will live Christ? Living Christ involves having the right attitude. Make no mistake about that. But living Christ means following the right rule. You can't live for Christ unless you know what Christ expects. You can't live for Christ unless you're willing to submit your life to His plan. It's not possible to live for Christ if you're not following the standard that God has provided for us. And so we live for Christ by living as He directs us. By living as He bids. How can we have unity? By preaching Christ? By living Christ? And then number three, by imitating Christ. Now this is at least slightly different from the idea of living Christ in this way. Look at chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, if there is any consolation the idea of consolation there is the idea of encouragement. If there is any comfort of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Again, we see this theme coming up in Philippians of unity, of being like-minded, of having one mind. He says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each of you esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Do you want to know how you can have unity, particularly in the local congregation? Paul answers it here in this passage. You can have unity if you'll do this. Be like-minded. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. In lowliness of mind... Esteem others better than yourself. Don't look out for your own interest, but for the interest of those around you. Why do we have problems with disunity? Why do people take alternate paths? Why do people break apart the church, the bride of Christ? Pretty simple answer. People are selfish. Individuals have their own desires, their own intentions, 
their own ways. And yet Paul is telling the Philippians, you've got to do just the opposite. Rather than being selfish, you've got to be humble. Rather than thinking only about yourself, you have to think about the well-being of those around you. Rather than charting your own course, you have to follow the plan that God has set forth. That's the only path to unity. It is the only way. And it can be had because Jesus charted the course. And this is where verse 5 and following comes in. He continues and he says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Let me take just a second about context here that's very important. I've heard some good sermons in my life, probably have preached some pretty good sermons from verse 5 without any idea of what's going on in the context. People will talk about Christ and they'll say, well, Christ was sacrificial, you ought to be sacrificial. Christ was pure, you ought to be pure. It is true that Christ was pure and we ought to be pure. It is true that Christ was sacrificial and we ought to be sacrificial. And you can come up with any other quality that equates to perfection with regard to Christ and you can say, and you ought to try to live that way and I'll say, yes, we should. But Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5 has one thing in mind. It has the humility that enabled Jesus to leave the glories of heaven in a selfless manner that you and I are supposed to imitate. I can imagine Euodia and Syntyche reading this letter to the Philippians, hearing it in the assembly, one sitting on one side, the other sitting on the other. They're not getting along. And this letter says you need to be of the same mind. You don't need to think about your own interest, but you ought to think about the interests of others. Do what is best for the congregation as a whole, not for yourself as an individual. And I can almost imagine them looking over at one another and saying, well, we've got to do some work here. And then Paul's words about Jesus. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. If there was anybody who had the right to be served by humanity, it was Jesus. He is in the form of God. It was not robbery for him to be counted equal with God, and yet he left the glories of heaven to come to this earth, taking on a humble place so that he could die for us. And what Paul is saying is, you've got to be willing to live like that. You've got to be willing to give up privilege. You've got to be willing to give up position so that you can help those around you. And the only way for us to have biblical unity within the church is for us not only to preach Christ and to live Christ, but for us to imitate Christ, who was selfless, who was humble, who was agreeable. Philippians 4 and verse 9 says, The things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. How can we have biblical unity as a hallmark of the church? If we as God's people will emphasize 
Christ and not ourselves. If we'll make sure that our lives are geared toward following him and not what we own selfishly seek, if we will imitate him, and fourthly, if we will rejoice in him. Two times in this letter, Paul tells something that's very similar. He says in chapter 3, in verse 1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write these same things to you is not tedious, but for you it's safe. Have you noticed that when conflict comes up in your life, sometimes it's conflict that you don't even expect. It's the kind of conflict that hits you on a random Tuesday afternoon with a phone call. You had no idea. When conflict comes up in our lives, we don't have a tendency to rejoice. We have a tendency to throw our arms up in the air and say, why me? And there's biblical precedent for doing that. That's what Jeremiah did. Lord, I don't understand. I can't understand why you're allowing all of these things to happen to me. I'm simply proclaiming your will. Jeremiah wanted to quit. Habakkuk didn't understand either. God, how can you use someone as wicked as the Babylonians to punish us. We're your people. Don't you understand? We're the ones who are doing what's right. We're the ones who are doing what's good. And so when we have difficulties in our lives, when our marriages start to crack and fall apart, when the job that you've worked dutifully at for the last 20 years is pulled out from under you, when your health fails. It's not the sort of thing that you stop at that moment, generally speaking, and start to rejoice. But you know, the Christian has a perspective that people of the world don't have. We can rejoice not only in those things that are good and enjoyable, we can rejoice even in difficulty. Why? Because of our Lord. Paul had suffered greatly for the cause of Christ. And yet he said rejoice. Even as he wrote these words from Roman imprisonment, he was not bemoaning the fact that he was innocent. That he was being spitefully treated. He said rejoice in the Lord. In chapter 4, he says the same thing immediately after he has addressed Euodia and Syntyche. He's told them, you all need to be of the same mind and the same judgment in the Lord. You need to make sure that these conflicts, these difficulties that you have amongst one another are resolved. And let me suggest to you that sometimes we're willing to go across the world to resolve a conflict and we're not willing to walk across the aisle to resolve one. We'll have conflicts with people that we don't even know and we're willing to break our necks to get there and to stop that. But we've got a brother or a sister that we've attended services with for 25 years and we're not willing to go and walk and shake their hand. Friends, shame on us if that's the case. Paul is writing to Euodian Syntyche and he's saying to them, you've got to get this together. Unity is a hallmark of the body of Christ. And if we're not united in our efforts here, how can we say we're united in our efforts to the world? God demands unity of his brethren. That means we rejoice when things are going well. It means we rejoice when we face times 
of trial. So Paul continues and he says, verse 2 of chapter 3, Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. I think he's talking about the Judaizing teachers here in this section. People who had followed him from place to place. Who had attacked his efforts to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, telling the Gentiles that they also had to be like the Jews before they could be saved. Those people were a problem, and yet Paul, even as he thought about them, said, we can still rejoice in the Lord. I don't know what your situation is in this life. I don't know what struggles you have, but I do know that if you're in Christ, you have hope. I do know that if you are in Christ, you can rejoice. I do know that because of Christ, we can resolve the conflict that we have with our brothers and sisters, and we can walk hand in hand as we serve God together. I know that the kingdom of God is bigger than my own personal problems and perhaps the grudges that I might hold toward those around me. And so I can rejoice. I can rejoice when things are going well. I can rejoice when things are difficult. I can rejoice because of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 14, because I have a purpose I can rejoice because the God of this universe is willing to hear and answer the prayers that I utter to Him. And it's because I don't have to be anxious in the difficulties of this life. It's because He hears me that I can have the peace that surpasses all understanding. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. And I can rejoice because of the strength that Christ provides me as His child. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. God is concerned with unity. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Jesus prayed, I'm not praying just for the apostles, but for all these, Father, that they may be one in you as you and I are in one another, that they may be one in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. Our unity is a calling card to our world. Don't doubt that. God wants us to be united. But all too frequently we're not. How do we change that? By preaching Christ. By living Christ. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. By imitating Christ. Not being selfish in your behavior, in your attitude. I rejoice in you. What a blessing it is for us to be called children of God. How thankful we should be that Jesus came to this earth to die for our sins. It is a blessing to know that God loves us. The world tries to sell us the idea that we're not really worth anything. We know differently. Jesus loved you enough to shed his blood on the cross for your sins. God loved you enough to send his son to do that. And it's because of his great love that we have hope. We must, of course, submit our lives to his plan. It might be the case that you're here tonight and you haven't done that. Or you might be like Euodia or Syntyche. You might be a fellow laborer in the gospel, but you might not be on the same page with your brother or sister. If that's the case, tonight is the night to resolve that conflict. 
Tonight is the night to lay aside selfishness. Tonight is the night to lay aside burdens and grudges. Tonight is the night to be unified as followers of Christ. If your life is not right, you have the opportunity to make it so. Right now, as together we stand and sing.